Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Can the Catholic Church change or be wrong? Let me be blunt. This is a question that's on many, many people's minds right now, especially as we deal with the fallout of the sex abuse scandal and the accountability for bishops, as well as just a recognition that maybe the church isn't responding to the current age well, or maybe there's practices we need to change to update or recognize where people are at. This question is on the forefront of many people's minds, and it's worth examining in great detail so that we can get a sense of how things can change and if things can change. So there's two core elements to this question that need to be explored in order to fully understand the implications of what I mean. So first of all, we have to explore what the church is. What do we mean by church? Second of all, we have to explore what we mean by right and wrong, or change, because definitions drastically affect the way we understand this question. So let's start out with the basic underlying question, the church. What is the church? So the Catholic Church can be seen in two different aspects, or more broadly, the church can be seen in two different aspects. The first one is called the mystical body of Christ. The mystical body of Christ recognizes a central reality that the church is in full union with Christ. That that is the full eschatological reality. That is what they'll eventually become. That the church, those the body of believers, will eventually be full, so grafted, so united with God that they will become one. Therefore, the church is entirely and completely in the life of God. A couple of different nuances need to be added to this definition to help you understand the gravity and the immensity of this question, or this particular t- issue. So the, the church as the mystical body of Christ recognizes the central reality that everyone who has been baptized, everyone who has been brought into the life of God, everyone who has grafted themselves onto Jesus is part of the church as the mystical body of Christ. In this way, those who are fully united with Christ are one with him. And in this particular case, the mystical body of Christ, the full union with God, cannot err. It cannot err because... It is fully living in the life of God, experiencing that fully, and fully following the will of God perfectly. There is no dissension. The challenge with that is we can't really understand or express or do anything with this reality. We are stuck saying, okay, this will eventually be the case, but this isn't what we are now. And even if it is what we are now, we can't really know the laws and systems of something that's beyond humanity. It's something that so fully shares in the life of God that it's not relatable in our current times. It's more of a recognition of what we will once one day become. And so in this particular case, the, the idea of the church as the mystical body of Christ does not help us understand this question any further. It just helps us understand one central reality, that the church always focuses on trying to understand what that will be like. What are the laws of God? What are his ways? How do we cultivate them, bring them into the present, and help us live them now? Because eventually that will be the case. So our goal is to live that most fully now in the best way we possibly can. 
And so recognizing the mystical body of Christ helps us recognize what we become, what we are, and how we get there. Which leads to my second point. The church can also be seen as an institution. And this is what we're most familiar with. Let's just be blunt. The church as a building, the church as a hierarchy, the church as having government and structure and laws, that's the institutional church. That's the side that most everyone is familiar with to some extent. And in this situation, we have laws, we have government, the pope, cardinals, bishops, priests, people. We have ways of practicing, we have people, we have different ways of believing. All this is part of the institutional church. As the institutional church, we are not confined, but celebrate the fact that we are a huge conglomerate of people with different ideas, expressions, opinions, concepts, beliefs, ways of believing, ways of praying, ways of practicing, all that is part of this. And as a body of believers, as an institutional church, we don't agree. We are fallible. We make mistakes. We err. And this is where when we talk about the question of can the church change and can the church be wrong, this is the focus of that question. Can we as fallible people make mistakes? Can we as fallible people err? Can we as fallible people change the course of the church to do better, to right wrongs, to do better things, to express theology better, to understand our life with God even more? And the answer is yes, but it's complicated. So within this concept of the church as an institution, we have several different facets of theology or facets of laws and rules that need to be explored and expressed in order to understand how the church could change or how the church could be wrong given the situation that the church is in right now, that it's an institution. The first one is called dogmas. What a dogma is, is it's an infallible teaching of the church. That means that the teachings considered as dogmas cannot be wrong. And these teachings are central to the reality of who God is. Let me give you a few examples so you get a sense of what I mean. So the, the, the dogma that God exists, the dogma that Jesus is God and man, the dogma of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the dogma of Mary as the mother of God, all these are considered infallible teachings of the church. They cannot err. And as far as I understand from history and the teachings of the church, there has never been a situation where dogma has been wrong. Other sources of dogma that complicate this matter include council documents. So for instance, so for instance, in the first seven centuries of the church, we had seven ecumenical councils, namely the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Ephesus, and so on and so forth. These councils were moments in which the bishops of the church gathered and discussed something about theology. We believe that when the bishops of the church gathered together and they're at prayer discussing a matter, that the majority rule indicates the movement of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit moves, then that means it must be correct. That is a dogma. Now, I want to take a moment and launch off this idea of dogma and talk about some of the complexities within it. So first of all, we make a basic belief assertion that dogmas are infallible teachings. Just like I talked about a while ago with the ability to prove, we can't technically prove with absolute certainty that a dogma is true. 
we have good reason. We have reflected on it theologically. We have prayed about it. We have gathered together at prayer and spoke about this. And therefore, because of this huge pool of prayer and reflection, we have a good reason to believe that this is absolutely true. But just like every moment of proof, it is a form of belief. Similarly, we have never had a situation where dogma was proved wrong. It is theoretically possible for a dogma to be wrong. It is not practically possible. So what a dogma does is it makes an assertion of theology that relates directly to who God is. And that's what it does. A dogma directly relates to who God is and helps us understand the deeper relationship of God and the interrelationship of God. Therefore, some things we normally consider as dogmas really are not. For instance, transubstantiation, the belief that the body and blood of Christ are changed in substance, or the bread and wine are changed in substance to become the body and blood of Christ. That is a mode of understanding the central reality that the bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ. The statement that the body and blood, the sorry, the bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ is a dogma. The mode in which that happens is a doctrine. See where things are getting complicated. So let's move into doctrine. I'm going to play around with this mental, this difference between dogma and doctrine a little bit more. So doctrines are teachings of the faith. They can come from councils as like secondary points. They can also come from the teachings of the Pope, such as through encyclicals or motu proprios or statements from the Pope. They can also come from theological reflection, such as a theologian presents a point. They can also come from the people at prayer, trying to express a reality of our theology or of our faith that is in process. Doctrines are pretty strong. It's not the same level in gravity as a dogma, as though they are infallible and cannot be wrong. But doctrines are on their developmental process to get to the point of being a dogma or are associated with a dogma. Like the example of transubstantiation that I used a moment ago, to describe the way in which the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Some doctrines are stronger than others. Some doctrines are on process to become stronger through theological reflection and prayer. Doctrines in their most basic sense are teachings that we should adhere to, but could it change? They can be updated, they can respond more to a certain time period, they can need different expression in a different time period, but ultimately they are not infallible, but they're not necessarily wrong yet. A good example of a doctrine that I would a good example of a doctrine would be social justice. Social justice is not a dogma. The dogma is that we should care for each other. The doctrine is, how do we live that out? So social justice as a doctrine does not fit the realm of dogma because it doesn't relate to the eternal realities of who God is. Instead, it is a way of expressing the central reality of how God wants us to act. And that will change and adapt to each time period. And it should. People of the Middle Ages are strikingly different than the people of our common era. And therefore, we need to respond differently. And that's where the change comes. Some doctrines are in process of change regardless. For example, the dogma that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, for the longest time since the teachings of Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, was understood as transubstantiation. That the substance of bread and the substance of wine become the substance of the body of Christ and the substance of the blood of Christ. In the 20th century, a new 
teaching came to expression through different theologians called transignification that looks at that Jesus said it, it must be so. So because he said this is my body, it is his body. That's a different way of expressing the same reality that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. The same thing works in many different modes of theology, where we wrestle with concepts and ideas to help us get a firmer, stronger understanding of a central point of our faith. That's what doctrines are for. Doctrines can be elevated to a dogma through theological reflection, prayer, and usually through some sort of statement by a council or the Pope. When the Pope decides to make a statement infallible, he has to do what's called make a statement ex cathedra, or from the chair of St. Peter. So he has to declare it to be so. He has to declare the teaching or the statement to be infallible and spoken ex cathedra, otherwise it is not that case. In the last two centuries, the Pope has spoken infallibly twice, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception and the dogma on the Assumption. It was very clear what he was stating, that these are central realities of the faith, and that he spoke ex cathedra, on the authority of the chair of St. Peter. See how rare it is that the Pope will do that. Most of his statements are in the realm of doctrine or teaching, in which they try to express points of theology, but don't have the weight that goes with an infallible teaching. And that's why we have to be very careful when we look at infallibility and we look at the possibility of error or change. We have to know the level to which that particular teaching falls. If it's a dogma, it cannot change and it cannot err. If it's a doctrine, it has the flexibility to be able to adapt to times, but it also has levels of authority that we have to then determine what that is. Is it fairly strong in our theology, or does it need quite a bit of reflection? The last two areas of teachings fall into the realm of teachings and disciplines. What a teaching is, is it's a statement by a bishop, a priest, a pope, a theologian, someone making a statement about theology. It's not really doctrinal, in the sense that it has the full weight of the authority of the church's tradition, but it has some weight as though someone is speaking on a matter of faith. And therefore, you can adhere to them as you wish. You can like it and decide to follow it. You can go against it and um, dismiss it. A lot of the lives of the saints fall into the realm of teaching and may be elevated to doctrine through further theological reflection and through further prayer. The last level is discipline. Discipline is the way that the church lives itself out. The different ways in which we practice our faith, the different ways in which we do things. For instance, many churches hold hands at the Our Father. That is a discipline or practice. It's the way that church is living out the way to express that particular moment in the Mass. People argue whether it's part of the Mass or not. I'm not going to get into that debate. The reality is that is a practice. Practices can change and move as they need to with expression as long as they don't conflict with the doctrines or the dogmas of the faith, but really are a true authentic expression of the people living out their faith in that current context. So these are four main ways in which the church expresses her beliefs and helps the faithful understand them. Dogmas, infallible teachings, doctrines, solid points of theology and faith, teachings, ways of expressing the faith, and disciplines or practices the way the people express them. 
Anything below a dogma has the possibility of change and even error. Let's talk about that. What do we mean by error or change? Most people define change as moving from one way to another, or it is not the same as it was before, which is how I want to define change, that what it was at one point is not the same as it was before that point. Erring, or being wrong, indicates that what it was is contradictory to what it was now, namely that what it was was wrong or untrue, and now what it is is correct and true. Therefore, there has to be a substantial change or a contradiction or a complete change in theology or expression to make it error or be wrong. This has actually happened. There are a few situations that I want to mention as ways to understand what I mean by change and error. In the Bible, it is clear that usury or taking money as a loan or even loaning money is considered immoral, and the Israelites were forbidden from participating in those practices. For the first seven centuries of the church, that was the law. You cannot loan money expecting repayment or expecting to in get taxed, um, to take interest on that loan. You can loan money, but you should get back the exact same amount, not anything more. And you cannot expect people to give you more money in exchange for the money you gave them. That is considered immoral. As climate changed and as the political system changed, it became evident that the practice of loaning money and expecting repayment with extra money, interest, was becoming more common. So the church laxed her stance on that particular point and didn't express that as an immoral act. Another great example is slavery. Slavery is not expressly condemned by the Bible, but it's not expressly accepted by the Bible. For the most part, the books that contain aspects of slavery were written in a time in which the government needed slavery as a way to keep the society running. In that way, anything that contradicted that would be considered heretical and treasonous to the government. So the scripture writers are very careful not to both condemn slavery, but also not to accept it, just to kind of leave the status quo. For a while, slavery was considered a normal way of living and that slavery was acceptable. When we head into the 12th through 15th centuries, that starts to get challenged. And as it gets challenged, we start to reflect on the aspect of slavery and eventually denounce it as immoral. That is quite a change, if not an error, in theology. It depends on how you look at that. Were we wrong and now right, or did we have quite a reflection on our theology to the point that we can now see it in a different light. In a similar way, when we started to colonize and send missionaries to the American continents, South and Central and North America, we saw the indigenous people there as very different from Europeans. Then the question became, are they human? The same issue happened when we started to colonize and evangelize Africa. Are they human? When we did that to the African countries, most people agreed that they were not human and we could treat them however we wished. That did not happen in the Americas. In the Americas, we started that same path, noticing that they were different than European standards, but several priests who were missionaries there made an appeal to Rome to change that stance and say, no, these people are human and need to be treated as human. This is not a change in theology. It's more of a way of understanding the broader scope of humanity, and therefore it looks more like changing and broadening our definitions and the way we understand the world. But these are 
aspects of change that have occurred. So the big question is, can the church change and can the church err? If you want to look at the issue of how to treat people from Africa and the Americas, that could be seen as a change or an error. I would argue it's more of a change, that the church changed from one perspective and broadened it to include more people into that perspective. The issue of slavery and usury, I would argue that's a massive change in that we had different theological reflection that led to a different understanding of the same issue. When it comes to error, this is where things get complicated. There's one example that I can use that might be in the topic of error. Two, possibly. I look at the Crusades. The Crusades were not necessarily a point of error in that the, the purpose of the Crusades was to go fight a holy war to take back the Holy Land. People talk about the Children's Crusade. The Children's Crusade is when a huge group of children rose up and wanted to go fight the war that everyone else did and no one really stopped them. That seems like an error in judgment, not necessarily an error in theology. Another prime example comes from the 9th century. Pope Formosus was the pope of the time, and there was a dispute of theology in Alexandria. As this dispute raged, they sent a letter to the pope to get his approval on a new aspect of theology. Reading the letter, he saw that it was fine, and he signed off on it. He did not know, or we're not sure whether he knew, the context of that letter. The context made the teaching of that letter heretical. And, once they found that out, they exhumed his body, put him in papal vestments, tried him as a heretic, condemned him, and threw him in the river. He was already dead by this point. The monks of Mount Athos held the appropriate orthodox opinion, and therefore were considered the they're defenders of orthodoxy. From that point forward, they have seen the Pope as heretical and teaching something wrong, and therefore no longer in line with St. Peter. This is heavily debated by historians because we don't know the fullness of that context. Beyond that, it's really difficult to find specific aspects of error, where we had a true teaching that would lead to a wrong expression. Some people look to the Middle Ages, especially the time of Martin Luther in the 15th century, and indulgences. Indulgences in their proper context, context are acts done that are good acts that then lead to the remission of sin, such as giving money to the church, or doing good things for the poor, or praying for the dead. These are all aspects that good actions that lead to an indulgence. In the Middle Ages, it was overemphasized or even wrongly emphasized to focus on more. if you pay more money to the church, we can forgive more of your sins, and the more you give, the more you will be forgiven. That is extortion. And Martin Luther was right to call that out, that the expression of that teaching was wrong for that time. Was the teaching wrong? No, the expression was wrong. So he was right to call it out, but it was not an error in theology, it was an error in practice. See how this gets complicated. So when we talk about error and change, we have to be real about what's going on. What is the level to which the teaching fits? Is it a dogma, doctrine, practice, or teaching? And can it change, or is it just wrongly expressed for that time? Some other prominent examples to help you understand the gravity of this come from the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council's teachings are dogmatic. They are authentic, true, infallible teachings of the Church. 
Their expression, however, radically changed what happened before to what happened after. We changed from a cruciform church building to a more open kind of semicircle view of the church. We changed from the Latin language to the English language. Those are changes and substantial changes. To understand the gravity of these changes, we'd have to live in both time periods and know the extent to which things changed. And even the way the liturgy flows is very different from the extraordinary form that was celebrated prior to the Second Vatican Council. These are changes. They don't change the underlying theology, neither do they change the way the Church expresses herself. They change practices, the way we live them out. And that's very important to note. So to summarize for a moment before I head on to a, a little bit of a different topic, dogmas are considered unchangeable. They are not in error. Doctrines can be erring. They can also change. Teachings can err all the time if they need, if that's the case, and they can change all the time too. Same with practices. Let me put a couple notable ones that will lead into a future episode and will help us understand it. Priesthood. The dogma of the priesthood is that the priesthood is an expression of the priesthood of Christ, and that the priest is called to offer up sacrifices on behalf of God, on behalf of the people of God. In that way, the priesthood as a sacrament is infallible. It is one of the seven sacraments and that will not change. What the priesthood is will not change. How the priesthood is expressed changes drastically. The doctrine that the priests are male is considered dogmatic. It is tied directly with the priesthood. Whether priests are married is actually a discipline or a practice that can change. And actually, out of the 24 rites of the Catholic Church, 23 of them have married priesthood as a norm. Only the Latin rite has a celibate priesthood. Even the priest as celibate is a practice. It's a discipline. It can change at any moment. The priest as pastor is a recognition of authority. The priest as someone who offers up sacrifices is dogmatic. The priest as the ruling person of the community is also doctrinal. See, even in the midst of the priesthood, things are very difficult to piece out into their particular parts. The last thing I want to talk about is how the church would change. What would that look like for the church to change? What does that do functionally? So the first way in the church changes is through the teachings of the Pope or through councils. So council is a moment in which the bishops of the church gather to discuss matters of theology or matters of practice, or matters within the church. That's what they do. And so they gather together, and they debate, and they discuss the issues of the times, and they'll come out with a de declaration. The declaration has to be voted on, and it can go from a massive majority to a simple majority that would declare it as true. Once the council declares that, it is considered infallible. When the Pope teaches infallibly and declares it to be infallible, it is also infallible and unerring. Through these two modes, the church can change or express theology more fully, but they cannot err. A council can never contradict another council, and so whenever the council gathers to discuss the matter, they have to reference the previous councils and make sure that it doesn't contradict anything that came before it. I have not seen a situation in which a council did desires to contradict another council or struggles because the teaching that they want does conflict with another council. 
That would be a fascinating thing to study. The second way in which the Church can change, and even err, would be through the teachings of the Pope and through the bishops. The Pope teaches all the time through documents called encyclicals. The most notable ones from our time are the encyclical on our environment, called On the Care of Our Common Home. We also have the great encyclical on on marriage, called Amores Laetitiae. These are moments in which the Church teaches the Pope teaches the people on matters of theology. One of the other most notable ones from the pontificate of Pope Paul VI was Humanae Vitae, which then led to the debate of contraception and the morality-slash-immorality of contraception. These are ways the Church changes, updates, expands on theology, and allows the Pope to teach, and allows the bishops to teach the people. They can change, and they can also change in the sense of adapting or expressing or widening our theological scope. They can also... Error is too strong. They can need further reflection or further explanation in that as long as they're teaching on faith and morals, they're considered more or less true. When there's conflict or division, that's where things might need a little bit of revision, or uh, clarification for us to understand what is actually meant. The last level in which the church can change or update is through the church herself. And this is a point that needs quite a bit of clarity. It's called the census fidei, or the sense of the faithful. The idea is this. When the church gathers at prayer, the people gather at prayer, and they all acclaim something as one, it is considered a movement of the Holy Spirit and therefore infallible. It is incredibly rare, but the three points of it need to be expressed in detail. The first point is that the people are at prayer. It's not just the people feel something, or they want something, or they think it needs to be this way, but they're actively praying. They're actively trying to know the will of God, and they're trying to express that well. The second point is that they speak as one. Not just hey, the people in America think this is the way it should be, but the people in China think no way. They have to voice it as one. Or, if we're expanding it to its furthest extremes, there's a group of people that really acclaim it as one, and there's no dissension. For instance, at the death of Pope John XXIII, a million people gathered in Rome for that funeral and acclaimed him as saint then. That moment of popular acclaim was considered a miracle and a movement of the spirit of those people who were there. The third point is that it has to be on a matter of faith and morals, that the people are reflecting on their faith and guiding them to understand something deeper, and that's what they're expressing. So that when they're claiming something, it's on a matter of the church. The church needs to change, the church needs to update something to that effect. But those three pieces have to come together. Church has to be at prayer, they have to speak as one, and it has to be a matter of church, and therefore it can change. An interesting and worthy example to explore this concept would be Our Lady of Lourdes. The Church has been reflecting for several centuries up to that point on whether the dogma of the Immaculate Conception was truly a dogma, whether Mary was conceived without original sin. And so theologians wrestled with it for much of the Middle Ages, citing on different camps, whether that makes sense or whether it doesn't, whether it truly is an expression of faith or whether it contradicts the very nature of salvation and what Jesus did. After lots of reflection, it didn't really go anywhere. 
Then we have this moment when St. Bernadette, Bernadette of Subaru was at Lourdes, and she was, had a vision of Mary. And after many subsequent visions, Mary introduced herself as the Immaculate Conception, which then went under further review and more theological scrutiny, and the Church went to investigate, and through both the revelation of Mary as well as through the Church, we declared the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Technically speaking, Bernadette's revelation came after the dogma was already proclaimed, indicating that she ratified the dogma itself. That's how things get complicated. So let's simplify things for a moment and bring it back to its core. Can the church change or err? Technically, yes, but we have to explain that. The church can change through its doctrines, teachings, and disciplines. So the teachings that have not yet reached the level of inerrant or infallible, they have some movement and ways that they can change. And the way we practice our faith, the way we express it, even the way we talk about it, changes drastically over time, and should as it adapts to the current time period, as it allows people to express the faith and make it real for them. Just because it changes doesn't mean it was wrong. It just means that what it was is not what it currently is. The way the church could err or be wrong is in expressions of doctrines or expressions of faith. And this is where things get very complicated and we need a lot of nuances that I don't have good examples to help you understand. Through the expression of faith and through the teachings, we could be wrong. We could indicate that like slavery, we were wrong on that point. Or usury, we were wrong on that point. And now we need to update that and say, okay, that was wrong, this is correct. There are several situations in the life of the church in which people and even popes were wrong. They made a statement that was wrong, not on matters of faith and morals, but more of on like governmental structure or how the faith should be at that moment or how things should be practiced. Those are the primary ways in which things were considered wrong or errant. For the most part, we don't have a lot of strong examples for when a doctrine was wrong or when a dogma was wrong. If you find otherwise, please let me know. I would love to hear your particular situation and what you think of that situation. I was asked a question a little while ago that I think would be a wise way to end this podcast, and that is, what ways do I think the church needs to change, or in what ways do the, does the church need to change? The simple answer is this, the church always needs to change to reflect and respond to the current time period. What that means is, she takes the dogmas and the doctrines of the faith, and finds new ways to express them to a modern world that doesn't have the same ideas, concepts, thought process as people did 600 years ago. We constantly need to update, constantly need to look at ways to express that, to guide people into the core truths from which all that comes from. As far as like change of practice or change of disciplines, I don't know if we need to change them. I think we need to figure out how to express them better and live them better. Because we're now we're in an age in which we just desire change. And we need to stop for a moment and recognize, what do we mean by change? Why do we need the change? And is the change even good? Because the goal in any change is always to strive for the best. To strive to make things better. To really recognize that there's something worth fighting for out there that's worth changing things for, and when we do that, then we truly strive for the good.
then our change is worthwhile. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 